Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this church of people who are here today to fellowship in your name. Thank you, dear God, for loving us continually the way you do and for preserving your word all these years so that we'll know that your love for us. Dear God, today I also pray for Brent as he comes to preach the word to us. Give him the words that you have him to say and guide his message to glorify you. Give us as a congregation open ears for what you want us to hear and willing hearts to change our lives in the way that you convict us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Am I on? Okay. So uh, welcome to Aletheia. If this is your first time here, we're so glad you're here. Um, we hope that you can make this your church home. Um, and uh, yeah, I get the privilege today of introducing us to a new book of our Forgotten Book series. The last two weeks, um, we have gotten to listen to Kevin talk about um, Philemon, and uh, today we get to hop backwards some years and um, look into the story of Habakkuk. Um, Today, it's going to be a lot of history, so get ready. I hope you like history, um, because we're diving in and kind of doing a brief breakdown of everything. Um, so, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there um, to Habakkuk. If you don't know where it is, start with Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament and go backwards five books. It's one of the minor prophets that no one really knows how to find. Um, so, little is known about Habakkuk himself, um, other than what we can glean from these three chapters that he wrote. We know based on these three chapters that he was a contemporary of um, Jeremiah and uh, of Jeremiah and Zephaniah, and he was likely a contemporary of Daniel as well. And we don't know exactly where he's at in this time frame, but we know that this was written, basically we can narrow it down to a five-year window of time when this was written down. Um, and you'll see why it had to be basically within those five years later on. Um, but we know that this was written after the reign of King Josiah and before the Babylonians came and conquered and took Daniel and the other um, captives away to Babylon. Um, unlike the other minor prophets where, and even the prophets in general, where um, the prophet basically is speaking a message to the people of Israel, the people of Judah. Habakkuk instead is a conversation between Habakkuk himself and God. And so this is kind of a view of a prayer life of one prophet. Um, and so we kind of get to see God answer prayer throughout this whole book. Um, today we just get to look at Habakkuk's concerns, his cry for help for God to come and meet him there. But throughout the next few weeks, we're going to really look into God's response and Habakkuk's, then another declaration of, God, where are you? And then God's other response, and then Habakkuk kind of ends the chapter with this amazing psalm of praise. Um, 
seeing God meet him exactly where he was at. And so um, today is kind of going to be a little bit depressing in the fact that it's the first four verses as Lois got to read. Like, it's, where are you, God? Um, So um, without further ado, let's read those together, and um, then we'll start looking into those. So if you can throw those up. Um, So the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Continue. Yeah. Um, Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so that justice goes forth. Perverted. So if we look at verse 1, it says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So this word oracle um, is used a couple times, especially in the minor prophets, and it literally just translates to burden. Um, And so basically what it's saying here is that when God gives a message to the prophets, it becomes a huge burden until they can then share it with God's people. Um, So it's saying that this burden that Habakkuk saw Um, Now, it doesn't do much to introduce Habakkuk himself. It just says Habakkuk the prophet. So we can kind of infer from this text that to Judah, he was well known. To the people in that era, like people knew who Habakkuk was. They knew he was a prophet. So there's no, like even Paul in his letters introduced himself um, a lot of times. Um, He introduced the people around him who were delivering his letters. Here, like there's, there's no introduction. So obviously there's he's well-known. People know who he is. He's probably done other prophetic stuff throughout this time period. And so when this was written down, it's this oracle, this burden that Habakkuk himself wrote down and then delivered. Um, In chapter 2, God actually tells Habakkuk to write it down so that the people can know what's happening. Um, So, But as we move on to verses 2 through 4, we kind of have to know where Habakkuk's coming from. We need to kind of dissect the whole history of of the Jewish people to to understand the weight of the circumstances that we find Habakkuk in and why he's crying out, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? So let's talk about Israel history. So you guys remember Abraham. He started in Ur, which is very near Babylon and Mesopotamia, and then moves up to where modern-day Israel is. Wasn't their property then. He basically borrowed a grave, did what? And so then there was the period of the patriarchs. So Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob, which is later known as Israel, and he had 12 sons, which end up the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, And then they end up in Egypt due to famine. Joseph goes over there. They end up 400 years in captivity in Egypt. So, after 400 years, we fast forward a little bit. Moses goes over. God uses Moses to do the plagues. They cross the sea, the Red Sea. God parts waters. He does miraculous things. The Israelites rebel. Human nature, they rebel. So they end up 40 years in the desert. Along comes Joshua and some other people, Caleb and some other fun, fun figures, and they end up leading 
um, the nation of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. Um, and then the period of judges kind of starts. So, um, so basically we're at year um, 1250 to about 1025. There's this period of judges, BC, um, so long before Christ. <laughs> um, there's this period of judges and this whole era was God was ruling the nation and when someone would attack or something would happen and, and the nation would kind of rebel against God, he would send calamity, strife. He would use the Assyrian, the first kind of Assyrian empire to come in or the Philistines to come in and kind of wake up the Israelites. And then these judges would arise who would be righteous men and women of God to lead the people through that time frame. Well, after a while of judges, the, the Israelites got sick of not having one king, a human being, to lead them. So they said, God, give us a king. Samuel, give us a king. You're, you're the messenger of God. Give us a king. So Samuel then anointed Saul. Um, God said, okay, but by having a king, there's going to be a lot of oppression. These kings will eventually rebel. There's going to be a lot of stuff, but you're choosing a human king over me. So, all right, I'm going to give it to you. So Saul happens. He was great at first, turns away from God. <laughs> then there's a whole David-Saul predicament, and then David comes into the throne. You hear the, know the story of David and Goliath. He becomes, turns away from God as a man after God's own heart. There's the whole story of David. Amazing story. You guys should read it. It's awesome. Um, then he has Solomon. Solomon is a wise king, but even towards his end of years and all of his splendor, turns away from God, sets up statues to Asherah, Asherah, poles and all that, and starts worshiping other gods. And then Solomon's kids, then he dies, and his sons basically have a civil war over the kingdom. And then the kingdom is divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Can you throw that map up there? Um, so 10 tribes um, go to the north and create the kingdom of Israel. Um, and then two tribes stay in Jerusalem and create the kingdom of Judah. So the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Um, and so from here on out, the, the Jews, the Israelites, are basically divided. Um, there's two kingdoms, two sets of kings. Um, the capital of the northern kingdom is Samaria. So in the Jesus' time, those were the Samaritans. Later on, after um, Assyria takes all the captives, um, they repopulate with a bunch of Gentiles. So then they call that area like the mixed breeds, and that's why Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews. The Jews were the, Ju the people from Judah. So, I mean, this is, I'm trying to give you a kind of overarching cultural backdrop of what's going on here. So, in the southern kingdom in Judah, um, some fun things start happening. They turn away from God. Even though the line of David is still on the throne, they rebel. So, there's, in both kingdoms, both kings eventually lead their people away from God. They set up idols. They set up all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and it just gets crazy. Um, so for almost 300 years, both kingdoms slip into spiritual decay, moral decay. Um, and then around 745 BC, um, the Assyrian Empire kind of gets a new leader, and they wake up a huge military. So they've been there all along, every once in a while attacking, but for the most part, like, weren't a big deal. New empire, emperor comes along and basically 
militarizes the nation and they start conquering. So if you can throw out the Assyrian, so eventually, so the capital is Nineveh, up there kind of in the far upper right. Um, you can see Babylon kind of south of that, and then if you can see Samaria and Jerusalem, that's the northern kingdom and southern kingdom and their two capitals. So all of the stuff in Jeremiah when it says people invading from the north, Babylon and Assyrians and even the Philistines were kind of northeast along the Mediterranean Sea, so all the northern people that invade are basically lumped into one people, and then Egypt's to the south. Um, So Israel's kind of stuck between huge empire and then Egypt, which is also a huge empire down in the south, and they're the land bridge in between them. Um, So the Assyrian Empire kind of comes to power. We know that Jonah at some point during this time goes to Nineveh, and there's a huge kind of repentance, but a hundred years later, not so much. Um, There's other prophets that end up in Nineveh, Um, and so, but At around 745, when Assyria starts getting militant, the northern kingdom um, has a king on the throne um, that, due to assassinations and all sorts of other crazy political strife within a matter of a year, there's like four different kings. The last one who ends up military coup, whatever, says, you know, we're going to stop Assyria. They're starting to militarize. We're going to band together with all of our surrounding nations and put a stop to Assyria coming any, any further. And they ask Judah for help. And Judah says, no. (laughs) So instead of just partnering with the Philistines and partnering with um, Aram and all of the other ones, people around them, they say, okay, well, we're going to go down to Judah, besiege Jerusalem, and depose the king that's there and put a king in place who will then rally all of Judah to be with us against the Assyrians. So a civil war basically breaks out between the northern and southern kingdom again, (laughs) And Judah then asks Assyria for help. And so this is kind of an interesting predicament. So Assyria comes in and is like, yes, of course, we would love to have help from our southern kingdom so we can sandwich in this northern kingdom, Israel. And so Assyria comes in and the Bible talks about because of the spiritual decay, because of them turning away from God, because of all the stuff they were doing, it's, the northern kingdom is basically wiped out. Assyria takes almost the whole population off and puts them in exile, and they're commonly referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel from then on, because almost the whole population was sent away to all the different cities of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, and then they were repopulated with Gentiles in that area. So interesting stuff's happening, but Judah, the Assyrians kind of leave alone. They heavy, like they, they tax them with a huge tribute. They say, in order to be part of this, you're under our protection, but you have to pay us, I think it was like four tons of silver and about a ton of gold. So the king at the time basically stripped the temple of a bunch of precious metals to give to Assyria, and then every year they had to pay this huge tribute to Assyria. Um, so for about a hundred years before Habakkuk and the Babylonians kind of invade. The Assyrian Empire is there asking for tribute, but they're kind of not a big deal. Um, And towards the end of that hundred years, Assyria starts to wane in power. Um, One really cool righteous king, Josiah, comes up. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Josiah because at the end of Josiah's reign is somewhere 
where Habakkuk comes in play. So Josiah came to power when he was eight years old. Um, so for almost a hundred years, they had turned their back on God. Um, let's read— Let's read 2 Kings 23, 4 through 14. So when Josiah came to power, um, he inherits the throne at 8. He starts following God at 16. So he's introduced to that. He finds the Torah at 19, hidden in, in the temple, and then basically he repents. He tears his clothes. He says, okay, we've gone so far away from God. So now he spends the rest of his reign basically taking down idols, reforming, trying to get the people of Israel to turn back to God. And so this is where we find it. And it says, And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, to, and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and for Asherah and for all the host of heaven. So not heaven, but any false gods, basically. Um, he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Um, and then he deposed the priest whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun god and to the moon god and, and the constellations and, and the host of heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. So there was Asherah poles in, temp, in, in the temple that Josiah's father and grandfather Manasseh, who was a horrible king, had put in the temple um, and basically using God's holy place that Solomon had set up as a place to worship Asherah. Um, and so then, uh, and burned it all up at the brook of Kidron and beat into dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. So also inside the temple, there were houses of male cult prostitutes. So people would go and receive prostitution as worship to Baal and worship to Malak. And so that was happening in the temple of God. So God obviously was furious. I mean, his holy place that Solomon had set apart, that David had fought to, to have this covenant people be his light, his image to the rest of the world, had fallen so far that there were prostitutes and other gods being openly worshipped in his temple. And so he broke down the house of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings, from Geba to Beersheba. He broke down the high places and the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, um, the governor of the city, um, which were on one left of the gate and of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come out to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers, and he defiled the to topath, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. So the Israelites were sacrificing their children as offerings to Molech. I'm, I'm reading all this to give you a really good understanding of how far the people of God who knew God and worshiped God in the time of David and Solomon had fallen. They were killing their sons and daughters on the altar to Molech. Just a couple more verses here. Um, or is that it? Yeah, sorry. It's, it's slow. <laughs> so actually, we don't need to continue reading. But basically, we've got male prostitutes. We've got statues to Asherah. We have whole areas, cities that have temples to Moloch. Um, 
And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun and at the entrance of the house of the Lord. So at the entrance of the temple, there were these huge statue horses that were idols to the sun god. (laughs) Um, And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And so it just goes on. The whole chapter of 23 continues to go on all the reforms that Josiah made. He brought, before it goes into this, he said he brought the whole population of Judah to Jerusalem and read the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, which is what he found, and then committed to to God and had his people commit to following after God once again. So for 30 years, for 30 years during Josiah's reign, we got to see a, a revival, a transformation, people turning back to God, the righteous being restored, young men and young women seeing what God could do in the lives of the people around them. At the same 30 years while Josiah was on the throne, the Assyrian army was basically kind of decaying. Babylon was starting to um, rebel. Um, For the first time in Assyrian history, a king died on the battlefield. And so then at the end of Josiah's reign, Egypt had heard about this. Babylon had heard about this, and all of the other bigger states had heard about this, and so Josiah died because Egypt's pharaoh wanted to march through Israel, through Judah, to go battle Assyria, and Josiah's like, no, your, your, your army's not coming into Judah, <laughs> and so he's killed on the battlefield, and then when Josiah dies, his son takes over and only reigns about a month before um, Nepeth, um, the pharaoh at the time, comes through and then puts someone else on the throne that was completely immoral, was a Jew, but completely immoral. And so within the, the nine years of this new king's reign, Habakkuk and all the other righteous people saw everything that Josiah had restored go back to the way it was. And their hearts were broken. For 30 years, they saw how good God had been, how much God had protected them from this, the Assyria in the, in the north and Egypt in the south, how much God loved them. For 30 years, they got rid of all idolatrous worship, not all, but for the most part, like it was outlawed and, and they had righteous people in the temple. They had a righteous king on the throne. The prophets, like Habakkuk, were well known in bringing the message of God, God's love, God's restoration, the coming of a Messiah, bringing the stories of David, the stories of of how God rescued his people and how God had set them apart, God had made them the image to the world around them to be light in a world of darkness. For 30 years, they had hope restored. And then in a matter of nine years, it was all dashed. There were prostitutes back in the temple. Poles were erected back in the temple. The stuff in the temple was sold off and given to the Assyrians. And Habakkuk and the other prophets of his day, their hearts sank. And they're like, why? Why, God? And not only that, in his own countrymen, not Assyrians coming, not non-Jews, but his own countrymen were completely buying into it. There was still a righteous remnant. There were still some people that followed God. There were still some people that honored him and had tasted and seen that God was good, but, but they were being abused and neglected and 
tread upon by all the, the selfish, rich people who are just taking advantage and, and destroying the world around them. And so that's where we find ourselves when Habakkuk's message comes. He has seen all this. He's seeing his own countrymen turn away from God, and he says this, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Let's just break that down a little bit. Oh Lord. <laughs> yes, this, this little phrase, oh Lord, is the name of God. The name that had been lost for a hundred years. The name that was reintroduced to the people when the Torah was found in the temple. So for 30 years, they had been reacquainted with this name, Yahweh. God, I am, I am that I am. The name that Moses was introduced to through the burning bush. And so he says, oh Lord, Yahweh, the I am that I am. The formal name for God, the God that is there, the God that meets, the God that has relationship with his people. He says, oh Lord, how long? This how long kind of phrase is a very common form of formal complaint. Um, let's look at Psalm uh, 13. This whole psalm is only six, six verses, but I'm just going to read the first three verses. And this is to the choir master, Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you, for, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So this is a formal complaint to God, not saying, God, you suck, not saying, God, I've lost faith in you, but God, how long do we have to endure this? You were a God of eternity. You were a God who is so big. It wasn't questioning faith, but it was like, where are you at? Why are you not doing anything? How long do we have to endure this, this tragedy? How long shall I cry for help and you not hear me? He has in our lives. How often do we find ourselves in that position? Knowing that God is big, trusting that he has the power to do things, but then at the same time saying, God, how long? How long do I have to suffer in this position? How long do I have to deal with this sin? How long are you just going to let me wait here? Frustrated, angry, alone, feeling neglected. But Habakkuk doesn't just stay there. So he says, how long will you not hear or cry to you violence and will you not save? So this violence that he's talking about, the rich people were completely taking advantage of the poor. They were back to killing their kids on altars to Malak. There's violence going on, God. How can you let this happen and do nothing? After 30 years, what seemed like repentance was happening, a whole country had turned back to you. How can this happen? How can you let this violence back in? How can you idly look at wrong? He can hardly believe that God can tolerate sin instead of punishing it. And then he says, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. 
So the law of Moses, these people have heard it, they know it. For 30 years it has been brought back to light and instead of listening to it and repenting and turning back to God, they willingly turn their backs and rebel and seek after their own selfish desires and seek after their own pleasures. And it breaks Habakkuk's heart. Habakkuk's heart, sorry. So he's like, God, your law is paralyzed. It means nothing to these people. For the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. He believed that God's inactivity was causing injustice to become even worse because God wasn't nipping it in the butt. So God wasn't stopping it right where it was started. The wicked weren't being punished. They weren't being stopped. It was, in his mind, just making it even worse, almost encouraging them to rebel, almost saying, you know, yeah, for 30 years we've talked about this God, but he must not be very big because he's not doing anything. Oh, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. Like, I'm just here doing this. What are you going to do? I stepped over the line, God. Nothing's happening. No lightning strike. All right. I'm just going to live in my selfishness. What are you going to do? Like, that's basically the attitude of the Israelites at this time. And Habakkuk is like, God, how long? What is this? And his heart's broken. He finds himself asking these questions, seeking answers. You guys, from the time we start walking, from the time we start talking, we ask questions. It's kind of fun. I love hanging out with little kids because they're just like, why? Why does this happen? What's going on here? How does the world work in this area? The big question, why? How come? Why? <laughs> and it can be really annoying to parents and babysitters and whatnot, but like we as human beings were created with this curiosity that can't be quenched. And from the innocence of childhood all the way through university, like we theorize and, and talk about complexities of the world and why has this happened and, and these huge complex whatever. And then when we get into the workplace, it's how can we better the efficiency of this? How can we make this product better? How can we set ourselves apart from the people around us? How can we set our company apart from those around us? What can make us niche? It's all these questions of just the world. We as human beings are constantly pursuing answers to questions. The problem is, is there's some questions that we come across that don't have easy answers. There's some questions that we deal with that can't be just tied up in a neat bow. And at the church, a lot of times, people walk away from the church because they can't find the answers. They get frustrated because they're like, I've struggled with depression and God isn't meeting me here. I have had this miscarriage, God, and I'm lost and I'm broken. And Where are you at? How can this happen? All this injustice is happening around me and you're not doing anything, God. Are you even real? Are you even there? We, we have questions of these unanswered questions. Why is there evil in the world? How can God be good and still be completely powerful? How can those two things exist? Where was God when this happened? These unanswered questions and these deep interrogations of our heart can drive us 
to create more questions and more naggings, and they can lead our, to spirit-destroying doubt of how, of God's goodness, of God's control, of who God is. And if we don't direct those questions back at God, that doubt takes root and builds a foundation in our hearts and just leads us away. Habakkuk wasn't a person who could just let the questions be there. Because we react often in two different ways to these hard questions. We either shrug it off and be like, it's not a big deal. And even though it's at the back of our mind, we don't really know how to answer it. So it's like, all right, we're just going to move forward. I can't deal with it, so whatever. It's not a big deal. Or we go the opposite route and just let that question nag and debilitate to the point that we just doubt everything and become cynics and frustrated and angry with life. Habakkuk wasn't able to do either of those things. He wasn't able to shrug off that God wasn't active in what was going on, and he wasn't able to become cynical because he trusted God. He had faith. He's like, God, I've seen you in your glory. I've seen what you can do. I've seen you work in these last 30 years. Where are you at? Instead, his questions were brought back to the one person, the one thing that could answer them. And throughout the rest of the book, we see how God answers them. We see how God meets Habakkuk right where he's at and doesn't leave the questions unanswered, but says, if only you knew. I'm already working. I'm raising up the Babylonians to completely conquer. I am about to punish. And why? Not to harm you, not to make you full of despair, not to make my name not known, but instead so that you know me more, so that you will come back to me, so that you will be refined and tested and turned into what you were created to be, my image to the world around you. Sometime in this five years, at the end of this five years, where whenever Habakkuk wrote this, Babylon came in, took over Nineveh, came down from the north, took over all of Jerusalem. And we'll see that this was all foretold later on. But in the midst of the pain and the frustration, we see the stories of Daniel, which brings hope. We see the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which bring hope. We see much down the road how God was working and pulling strings the whole entire time. And so from hindsight, looking back, we see God's hand through all of it. We see how he orchestrated all the things to happen in his perfect timing, in his perfect place. But in that moment, Habakkuk was like, God, where are you? What is going on? Why am I here? Why am I feeling so frustrated? Why do I have this hurt and I'm seeing all this pain around me and you are doing nothing? And you guys, if you're in that place today, asking God, where are you? Why am I still struggling with this? Why is this such a big deal and I can't get over it? I don't understand. Just like Habakkuk, God doesn't want to leave you there. We as humans can't see the future. We can't see the big picture. But that's where faith comes in. And the only way that our faith grows, the only way that we can be okay with the hurt and the pain in the world around us, with sick kids, with cancer, with diseases, with all the pain and hurt in the world, 
is if instead of just doubting and questioning, we say, God, I need you. And our focus goes from the problem to him. Habakkuk understood that if he focused on the problem, the problem would, would take over his whole entire life. But instead, he took up his frustration with God himself and said, God, where are you? Why am I still having to deal with this? Why are you letting violence go on around me? Where are you at? So the challenge today for you, if you're caught in pain, if you're caught in frustration, if there's if you're one of those people who's just shrugged off those nagging questions and don't have answers, take it seriously. Bring those to the forefront of your mind, and instead of just shrugging off, bring it to God and say, God, I don't understand this. How can you be good and yet let this happen? If you're one of those who have completely been caught in despair, completely overwhelmed with whatever it is you're dealing with in your life, instead of focusing so much on the issue, look up. Take your gaze off of the issue and say, God, I have this thing and it is crippling me. And I have no idea what to do with it. So I'm bringing it to you. I'm taking this pain, this hurt, this frustration. You're the only one who can meet me here. And somehow in the midst of this, we see God meets us. And although the problem is still there, although nothing really changes in our circumstances, somehow, some way, God's presence meets us where we're at, and our questions turn into praises. Our frustrations and our anger turn to seeing how God is big and He works. Even if nothing changes, somehow hope is restored. You guys, here in Aletheia, we take communion every week. Um, and so we're going to do that really soon. But the thing is that I want you to do before you go up and you take the bread that symbolizes Jesus' body broken for us and the blood, that's his blood poured out for us. That, as Christians, through Jesus, we meet God. He bridges the gap. He is the one who makes everything possible. Through him, we have hope. Habakkuk looked for the Messiah to come. He knew that God would come one day. We, looking back, know that it's Christ who meets us in our pain. It's Christ who meets us in our despair. And it's Christ who brings hope. So before you come and take the bread and the grape juice, my challenge to you is to sit in silence and in prayer, letting God come into your situation, letting God meet you where you're at and letting God take the burden and the weight of the questions that you don't have answers to off of your shoulders. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. <laughs> but sometimes it doesn't feel like it. And sometimes we don't understand how you can still be at work, how you can still be on your throne when it seems like the world is falling apart. So right now, Father, we invite you in. Lord, I pray for my friends in this room. I pray that you would meet us. Holy Spirit, fall. Where there is pain, where there is frustration, where there is 
despair in our lives, God, I pray that you would come and meet us there and that you wouldn't leave us there, but God, that you would lift our gaze to you and give us hope. That you would give us different eyes to see what's going on around us. That you would remind us of your love and you would remind us of your grace. Jesus, we invite you to come and have your way in our hearts and our lives. Come meet with us now. We ask this in Jesus' name.